0: It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain. Somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. Lift off.
1: I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. In November
0: of 2022, the Artemis One mission launched out of the Cape Kennedy Center, headed to the Moon for the first time in over 50 years. The Space Launch System rocket propelled the Orion capsule out of Earth's gravity well and on a trajectory away from Earth.
1: The SLS, a rocket on par with the powerful Saturn V used in the Apollo missions, is the key to America's return to the lunar surface in the next few years. So
0: today we talk with Artemis one lead flight director, Rick Lebrode.
1: We caught up with Rick late one afternoon at the Johnson Space Center.
0: We'd like to welcome flight director, Rick Lebrode of the NASA Johnson Space Center to the Adrenaline Zone. Welcome, Rick.
2: Hey, well, thank you. I appreciate y'all having me. I'm looking forward to this today.
1: Yeah, well, Rick, um, you know, for a humble fighter pilot, it's really a privilege to be able to talk to somebody who's a flight director for something as ambitious as the Artemis uh, mission and, and to say nothing of all the other things that you've done. So give us a picture. You know, everyone's seen pictures of mission control, you know, and consoles all around with people staring intently at the screens, but not really, you know, people like me don't really know what the flight director does. Can you tell our listeners what what your role is for a NASA mission and, you know, where are you located for a flight?
2: So actually, um, the part you see on TV where we're in mission control, that's just one piece of it. And actually, the smaller piece, you know, it's probably 10% of the job. 90% of the work is done before we even get on console. Um, But before we get there, the part in, in, in mission control is you saw those other consoles, each system on a vehicle, whether it's, you know, we started back in Apollo. We did it with the space shuttle. We do it with International Space Station, and we're doing it with Artemis. Each system on the vehicles has a single console that's actually responsible for monitoring and control of those systems, configuring. So each of those consoles are looking at their system. Now – just to do the nominal mission or to respond to anything that's off nominal, they work that through the flight director. They have to basically go through the flight director to get the permission to go and do what they need to do. And they, we talk it out over on the loops and, and figure out what the best course of action is. And then we give them a go and they go and execute that. They're the experts of their systems. The flight director just basically manages it all and pulls it off. We actually are looking at the bigger picture. And we know what uh, the puts and takes are. You know, you may be doing something in your position that may be affecting somebody over in this other position. So we need to take all that uh, to bring that big picture uh, piece of the story to uh, to the console.
1: So I guess you're responsible for sort of you know before there's a launch, all these different people who have safety inputs come to you, and you've got to get a, an up from all of them. And that's maybe that's hard enough. But uh, while you're actually flying. If somebody needs to do something, you have to be able to recognize there may be an unintended consequence over here and, and let's bring the right people together. OK, cool.
2: Yeah. And the buck really stops at the flight director console. You know, we were ultimately responsible for the well-being of the crew, although we didn't have crew on my Artemis 1 mission. But for any other uh, crewed mission, we are responsible for their well-being, their safety, as well as uh, the vehicle itself, safety, because that's a national asset for right taxpayers. And we have the authority. We, we try to pre-plan and we think about all the what-if scenarios that could go wrong and we build flight rules that make real-time decision-making easy, right? Because if we've already thought out that scenario and thought about what are the implications to it and then we write it down, this is the action we're going to take. and We put this in a flight rule. So those make the real-time decisions easier. It's when we don't have a flight role that covers that scenario where the flight director earns his his, his paycheck and, and makes the decision as to what needs to be done in order to keep the crew, the vehicle safe and complete the mission.
0: And we've had a few of those over the years in the ISS program. But, you know, Rick, I don't think people understand how highly competitive it is to become a flight director. And I would argue it's probably even more competitive to be a flight director than it is to be an astronaut. So congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, it is. No, it's really it's it's more competitive because it's a smaller group of people and they have to go all the way through the training. And so I have to ask, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but what what made you want to become a flight director and what was your path into that position?
2: Yeah, well, it, it's really a good question because it's it's actually interesting. Now, the aspiration to be a flight director, that's that's I think almost every flight controller who works in mission control. They aspire to be the person who's large and in charge in the room. And that, and I was no different. Right. I wanted to be the guy who people came to to ask the questions and got permission to go and do stuff. But when I first hired on right out of college a long time ago at 1985, uh, I was a shuttle flight controller and I hired on as a contractor. So we have a, a mix of civil servants or federal employees and contractor personnel. And it's really a badgeless society for the most part. You can have a front room contractor telling a back room federal employee what to do. You know, that's just the way it works. And it works perfectly. No change. You know, I aspired to be the flight director, but it wasn't even an option because back then contractors couldn't even apply for a flight director position. Well, I just happened to be at the right point in my career at the right time when they decided to open it up for contractors to apply. And lo and behold, I uh, was blessed when I got selected as the first Contractor flight director, and when I was selected, I actually changed badge badges and became a federal employee.
0: What year was that? I don't remember. That
2: was 1998. 1998,
0: yeah, two years after I was there.
2: So now, now, it, routinely we are hiring contractors because it, it just broadens your the field of people that can apply. So it works out. It worked out really, really well. I was just like I said, right spot, at the right time in my career. So.
1: Yeah, I hear you. So, you know, Rick, Sandra's always educating me on, on all things space. And something I didn't realize until recently when she told me was that the launch control center at Kennedy Space Center actually is in charge of the launch, you know, the countdown and all that kind of stuff. And then when the vehicle clears the tower at that moment is when it switches over to Houston. Which is odd to me as a fighter pilot. It's like, you I mean, at the most critical, maybe dynamic part of the flight, you know, we're, we're handing off control to somebody else. Can you talk us through that process and and what is your role as part of that handover?
2: Sure. First of all, let me make a minor correction. It actually doesn't happen at tower clear, although you hear that uh, commonly. It actually happens at solid rocket uh, booster ignition.
1: Oh, so before it's even lifted off. Okay.
2: Yeah, right. Right when, as soon as the engine's light.
1: That makes more sense to me.
2: Yeah. The reason being, as soon as uh, those guys light, right, the umbilicals pop. And and at that point, the folks at Cape Canaveral, KSC, they don't have a connection to the vehicle. They don't have an RF link to the vehicle. Um, They only have a hard line link. So immediately we in Johnson Space Center here at, at Mission Control in Houston have control of the vehicle because we have the RF links that are established and we're ready to command right away.
1: Okay and those RF links are active before the launch obviously or you wouldn't let it go
2: yeah right right exactly they are
1: and so you're you're in control of the whole process though right i mean y- you own both the launch and the the transition
2: well no like uh, they actually they push the the big red button right to light the engines okay, okay? Now we're working with them hand in hand leading up to the launch. you know, they process the vehicle, they stack it, they test it, and we support a lot of those efforts. But on the day of launch, you know, we'll have a we have a command windows where we actually send commands from from Johnson Space Center, Mission Control, to configure the vehicle and get it ready for launch, because uh, there's things that the vehicle needs to do during ascent that we need to control, like what anten- antennas to select for, to maintain communication. So we put these commands on board pre-launch. Now there's some commanding that the the folks do from Cape Canaveral, uh, so it, it's a, it's a combination. Um, but one of the big things they're doing are uh, they're monitoring what we call launch commit criteria, and essentially we want to make sure when the vehicle launches that we don't inherit a vehicle that is already uh, in a bad situation. As far as like if you lose, you know, for a lot of our systems we have redundancy in pretty much everything, right? But if if you if you lose one of your redundant boxes. It could potentially put you in a uh, early return scenario. So we don't want to launch into that. We want to not launch on that day and go and replace the box and get us in full capability, full redundancy, and then uh, we'll launch on another day. So we are monitoring those systems with the team at Cape Canaveral, the launch control team. So we work together, but they are the ones that are in charge. Like if something did go wrong, they have pre-planned procedures that they're going to execute to try to recover the box while it's on the pad. Um we we interface with them to kind of give them, you know, our piece, you know, our two cents worth, uh, whatever, you know, uh on whatever the situation is. But they they basically control the pre-launch phase of it. We support them, monitor them, and then as soon as they hit the button and the engine's light, we take over control from there.
0: So, you know, the the lead up to the Artemis One launch was a lot of testing on the pad. They go out, they test, and then they'd stop, and then they'd roll back, and then they'd roll out. And so you guys were involved in every stage of that. And they the, the launch team was clearly learning a lot. I mean, first vehicle, monster vehicle, not unexpectedly, there were a lot of lessons that they were learning down there. What about on your side? Were you guys learning things as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's why we tried to tie in and and support all those activities um, because it was a learning experience for us as well. You know, every time they power on the vehicle, we see something new just to see how it responds at power up. And that's not just with the launch control team, you know, after the vehicle was stacked, we did it all through the development phase of Orion and through the SLS, you know, the core stage and the, and, the, uh, and the upper stage, we try to support every bit of testing they did because it was a great opportunity for the flight control team to gain experience and learn because, you know, it's the first time for us flying these vehicles too. So uh, we try to participate in those as much as, as possible. So a, a couple of related
1: questions since you're the flight director, but in terms of a go no go criteria for an actual launch, you know, if a system's broken, there's redundancy everywhere, but I'm sure you you don't want to use any of that redundancy up on the pad. And are you are you responsible for that decision as, as an overall responsibility, or do you just own the flight part and somebody else is making that we're going to go or not go?
2: It's pretty much the flight part, but we work very closely with the, the launch control team to develop those criteria, the launch commit criteria, because we're the ones who have to operate the vehicle. So we know Uh, And we write the flight rules for like we have each section. I was talking about each of the different consoles. They Each of them have their own section of flight rules. And the very last rule in the flight rule in each section is a early return rule. So if they experience any particular failure in their system, depending on what the failure is, if it leaves the vehicle zero fault tolerant to a safe return, then we're going to call it an early return mission. So we're going to bring it back before that other, in hopes of getting it home safely before that next failure happens. Because if that next failure happens, we lose the vehicle. And we leaned forward quite a bit on Artemis One because we, we it was a test flight and there was no crew, so we were a little more lenient on what we did there. But once we got, you know, and I'll tell you, one of our primary mission objective for Artemis One was to test the heat shield and uh, that that was going to protect the crew module on reentry and we wanted to test it at lunar return velocities and conditions so we're talking like 11.6 kilometers per second really really fast and once we did the translunar injection the big burn that that basically sent orion on the way to the moon we basically will have achieved that that objective we Could turn around right away and come back, and we're going to come in at over 11.6 kilometers per second. So, we lean forward. We would, if we had a system where if the crew was on board, we wouldn't even have done it and they would bring them home safely. We lean forward and we would actually go. We, our rules said we would actually burn TLI and then we pick a early return trajectory and bring it home safely.
1: Well, that's interesting because I was going to ask you, uh, if you did anything different for Artemis 1 than you will for Artemis 2 with crew, and it sounds like. You know, it wasn't just like a total dress rehearsal. You were actually able to be a little more aggressive uh, with Artemis 1.
2: Absolutely. Purposely. Test flight. In order to be able to test that vehicle and make sure it's going to be safe for us to put the crew on board.
0: Yeah, and we want to get into that a a little bit later, all the stuff that you guys did test. But a little bit more about the planning, because I don't think people realize how difficult flight planning is. I was shocked when I worked in the control room to... To the, the, the minutiae that you have to sort of balance. So can you just talk a little bit about that process?
2: Yeah, sure. So earlier I told you that the on- console piece is really 90%, I mean, eight, uh, 10% of the job. The other 90% is actually getting ready for the mission. So it starts early on, and I'll, I'll give you the numbers here in a minute, but it starts early on where the programs and the enterprise, they give us their mission requirements and their priorities. OK, what they want us to accomplish on the mission. And then we, as the flight ops team and myself as the lead flight director, we build a timeline that's going to achieve all their their mission requirements and their priorities. Then we go and train that. So we go and do simulations and simulations and we and we just train it and train it and train it. And then the on console piece is the execution. So we do plan, train, fly and and the plan and the train takes a long time. I started working. It was interesting. Sandy knows about this. After uh, each mission, we actually have a ceremony in mission control where the flight director office selects one discipline or one individual to hang the mission plaque. All right. And it's an honor. You know, typically they've done something above and beyond the call of duty. They've, you know, they've done something to save the mission, what have you. But it's a really neat ceremony. It's a nice, it's it's a nice honor. Well, we were doing the one for Artemis 1 and I started talking about you know, how how hard it was because this my lead team and I, we worked this mission for so long. I started looking at the numbers and we started building our flight products in, then um, that's like procedures, flight rules, and uh, documentation that we used for the mission. We started building those in 2018. Okay. Wow. So four years before the flight. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, many of the leads, myself included, we actually worked the exploration test flight number one which was back under Constellation, but it was a test flight of Orion. It was really short. It was only two orbits around the Earth. It went up to 3,100 miles and it came screaming in. So it did test a lot of the systems, but we did that in December of 2014. And then every Wednesday leading up to the mission, I would have a, a, a team tag up with my lead team members and they'd kind of, go, we'd go through each one of them and they'd give me the latest status of any issues they're working, if they need help from me or anything like that. And I did my last one after the mission and I... Uh, <laughs> One of the guys sent me an email when he heard that it was going to be the last one. He's and he forwarded an email that I had sent early on in the planning phase when we were starting, just starting up our our, um, our team tag ups. <laughs> it was dated 2009. That's how long I've been working this mission. Oh my God, Rick! <laughs> Did we have email back in 2009? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so but so anyway, generally you, it doesn't take that long, but we've been working it, and it and it, it is every bit of, of three four years to build the products, to build the timeline, and then train for it. I'm thinking of you know the, what we call the
1: Natops manual for for a, like an F14 is like this thick, you know, and you have a classified version that's this thick. I imagine your 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 manual is, is you know stacks and stacks.
2: Yeah, but we're all electronic. So everything's electronic now. We don't have paper. We're saving trees or something. I don't know. But yeah.
1: But I would imagine during your, you know, this, this plan, train, fly piece that the planning and training is a cycle where the, the training, the simulations, whatever are, you're getting discoveries in there that you're having to fold back into the planning, right?
2: Absolutely. I think more of it, especially with the first time of flight of a vehicle, we learned a lot about the software. The, the vehicle software, we would go and do something, uh, run our procedures and try to uh, with the expectation that it's going to do this. And I'm like, whoa, that didn't work. And we'd have to go dig into it and figure out, OK, uh, is there a problem with our simulator or is there a problem with the flight software? And in many cases, we had to go back to Orion and Lockheed Martin and say, hey, we got a flight software issue and we would work it. And, you know, it's schedule is a big driver, right? Depending on what the what the fix was. And what the impact would be to the schedule, we may defer that. We deferred a whole bunch to Artemis II. And we had viable ops workarounds for those for these scenarios. But uh it's a it's a continuous, never-ending process all the way up until launch.
0: And that's actually where some of the risk management comes in is trying to
1: figure out what risk posture you want to launch into and what systems and I was just gonna ask, you know, adrenaline zone. Is about risk, right? And I'm, I was curious if you if you have a categorization process where you know probability and consequence multiply together to to, to be like a tier one or a tier two, or, or is it just like it's a risk and we deal with it?
2: Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I mean, not all risks are created equal, right? I mean, early on in the design phase, the safety community does what they call PRA's um, probability risk assessments, and they look across the 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 whole vehicle, all the subsystems. And they look for the high risk, the ones that poke out. And those typically are the ones that that the program will actually throw money at to try to to resolve, to bring that risk down, to mitigate them. But once we get involved, you know, we try to help drive some of those discussions because we're also looking out for the well-being of the crew and just the operability of the vehicle. But uh, once we get a designed vehicle and we're fixing to fly it and we've got a plan, The real-time risk assessments are done by the flight director for the most part. I mean, if we have time, we go to a mission management team where you have a mission manager. You have the tech authorities, which are the engineering community, the health and medical community, the safety community. Then you have the various programs that are involved. So it's it's a collaborative type discussion to talk about any kind of risk and what's the best way to mitigate it, what options we should take. But when you're on console, if you don't have that luxury at that time, then the that risk mitigation and decision happens at the flight director console.
0: So what kind of risks were you mitigating or what kind of contingencies were you planning for, for this mission?
2: And, and Sandy can attest to this. We are really good here at, at Johnson Space Center and, and Mission Control, really good about thinking about the what if scenario. What what will we do if this happened? What would we do if that happened? And we we that's what part of that huge planning period is, is involves is is doing that. You know, you build a plan and then you go through and you analyze it and say, what happens if this happens at this time? And we build we build procedures, malfunction procedures, we build flight rules that talked about how we're gonna uh, what what we're gonna do in that situation. And then uh, we trade them. Man, when we go into a simulation you know, an eight hour SIM, you figure you got, I had 12 positions depending on what phase of the mission was. And each of those positions are seeing three failures, a, a SIM. So you add that up 27. I mean, it's a long day, let me tell you. And, right. and yeah. every SIM is like that. And we did close to a hundred SIMs for, uh, for Artemis one. Oh, wow. Now, a lot of it was because, you know, we, our launch slipped, slips, so we Start and added, stop. More, yep. added more, but I mean, we are very methodical about thinking about the what if scenario and, um, Some of the big things that we were looking at, like, um, you know, as soon as we launched and got on orbit, Orion deployed the solar array wings. There's four of them. And we looked at what would happen if one of the four didn't fully deploy and latch. Okay, bottom line is we 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 did all the assessments and we could generate enough power with three with three arrays to actually do the full mission. So we were going to burn TLI with one array, not latched. And there was risk there. There's no question there's risk there. But without a crew and the fact that it's a test flight, we want to get the data, we were going to lean forward and we're going to go for it. So those are the kind of things that that we we looked at. I imagine
1: it's, you know, at least in similar to my own experience, it's the different combinations of things that can happen that you have to try to figure out. Right. Did you ever did you ever wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, my God, I just thought of this? And we haven't been looking at this particular combination (laughs) or this particular risk. And then you got to write it down and think about it in the morning.
2: You know, I'm sure there were times where I had aha moments. But for the most part, I think because we worked it so long and my team was so good. They were so good. They made my job really easy. And I'll tell you. So the first, um, this was my fifth lead flight. I did, when I started as a flight director, it was right before we started assembly of the International Space Station. So I was first certified as an ISS flight director. So my first three flights were on the ISS side. For each of our assembly flights, we had a lead ISS flight director, we had a lead shuttle flight director. And the first three, I was, I was an ISS lead. And I vividly remember, you know, I'm I'm you can ask Sandy, I am a really laid-back kind of person. I would be considered type C, I would think. I mean, obviously when when the when the pressure situation arises, I can, I can take care of business. But for the most part, I'm really relaxed. I'm easygoing. But I remember those first missions that I was late on. As we got close to the mission, I started having problems. I couldn't sleep. You know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my mind would be going a thousand miles an hour trying to think about all the things I had to do. I've got eczema on my hands. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. And that happened, you know, it was a little bit less. You know, it really depended on what was going on with the mission at at, at the very end, right before launch. But for the most part, I, I really stressed over it. But this mission. I didn't have any of that. And I and I really think it's because we worked it so long. I felt so comfortable. We were ready. We were ready, you know, uh, easily the year before uh, to be able to fly this flight. So, yeah, we were doing work all the way up to then because that's, you know, you fill the time with work, right? Um, but I think because of that, my team was so good. I didn't have any of those moments where I woke up in the middle of the night and said, oh, I got to do this. I got to make sure I do that, you know.
1: So it was really good. So you can't fly something this complicated as hard as you plan, as hard as you train without having something unexpected happen that you have to deal with. Right. Or, or was this just like tickety boo the whole way through? And, um, uh, and, or was there anything uh, that you didn't expect to happen that you had to deal with during Artemis?
2: You know, for the most part, it was a flawless mission, really. Wow. The rocket put us right where we needed to go. Orion's performance was well better than expected. But we there's things that happened. I'll tell you uh some that's what I just actually talked about at that meeting I just came from. I gave a status on it. So I guess I mean it it, it really wasn't a big deal, but uh, we have what we call um power conditioning and data units. They're PCDUs, they're basically power boxes that do data also, and they have power switches. And these power switches uh are designed to assess for Overcurrent situations and they pop open right really qu- really quick to protect the downstream loads. If you have a if you have a short somewhere, well, we had like twenty four cases where these things opened up uncommanded and without a, a without a uh, overcurrent, they just opened up on their own. And in every case, we were able to close them. Now the the one that was kind of a big deal. I mean, generally all it did was take out redundancy to a, a system. But we closed them, and everything was good. The one thing that happened is um and this is right when we came back from a loss of signal, they have um one hundred and twenty volt power supplies uh switches that some of the equipment receives, and we had four of these things open all simultaneously, all right, and again, most of them were just taking out redundant you know redundancy in some of the systems, but we had one that we took out what we call a pressure regulation unit, which is used in the pressure control assembly for. Um, we have helium tanks that pressurize the, the prop and oxidizer tanks. That's what pushes the prop out. And that's how we fire our thrusters. We do translational burns. All of them use it. Well, one of them, one of the PRUs opened up on the fuel side. There's two of them, there's two branches. And if we couldn't reclose that, it would have been an early return scenario because if you lose that other one, then you basically lost your capability of doing translation because you can't, you can't push fuel to the, to the thrusters. Uh, we'd operate and look, Sandy probably recalls uh, what we call blowdown, right? Where you basically are just using the the pressure that tanks that at the time. And depending on where the mission are, you may not get home, right? So anyway, that happened uh, like 24 times. So they're still trying to figure out what the root cause was. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Lockheed Martin is updating his flight software to actually automatically close those things if it happens, uh, happens again. Hmm. Huh. The only other big thing, we went by the moon and we did what we called the, the first big burn as we go by the moon was the outbound powered flyby. I mean, we were only 60 miles off the surface of the moon. You know, we could high five it as we went by. And the, if you saw the imagery, it was just unbelievable. That, yeah, it, it was amazing. But um, after that burn, our onboard state vector walked off significantly. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of feet and we didn't understand why. Well... We worked through it and figured out that um, it's interesting. We use a, a covariance to help generate the solution. And the covariance is, you, is affected by the effects of gravity as you go by the moon. You know, we use a sphere for the covariance for doing our burn solutions. And the gravity stretches and changes the, the shape of the covariance. And we weren't accounting for it. So we just opened it up and, and it worked perfect on the way back on the return power flyby. No issues at all. But uh, it took us a while. So that was that was a pretty big deal. That was a really big deal actually.
0: So Sandy, we were talking about some of the challenges of space traffic management earlier. This is exactly that with but it's funny you think because the the gravity on the the moon is so slight that you're like why would I be worried about it but clearly yeah. it's a factor. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hey, so you talked about the the heat shield being the main test point. What other risk reduction activities were you doing during Artemis 1 to prepare for Artemis 2 when the crew's going to be on board?
2: yeah so I told you about the 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 requirements or the mission priorities that we received ahead of time. A lot of those included what we called flight test objectives or developmental flight test objectives, and essentially basically ringing out the systems, trying to see how they function in in the environment. so our priorities, like I said, the first one was to test the heat shield, the second one was to actually operate the vehicle in the environment and just test all the systems you know com systems, cooling systems the onboard computer systems, the guidance navigation and control all of those so and then the third one was actually recovery of the of the capsule we want to, uh, want the recovery forces to be able to practice recovery to make sure we they know how to do it before we put a crew on board. The mission went so well as i just as I just alluded to, we actually added additional like twenty one additional developmental flight test objectives real time during the mission, and they were things like um so let's um let's plume the solar arrays to see how that radiative heating is to see if it really you know we have we had models what we thought it was gonna do we're gonna get real data do we did that we had constraints about you know how long orion could go out of attitude and we had a limit of three hours continuously and but if you did that three hours once you had to go back to tail to sun which is our, our normal our normal attitude we had to go back there for 10 hours so we needed to see if if, if that you know, those assessments generally have a lot of conservativism in them. So we wanted to get the real data so we could actually update the models and and relieve some of those constraints for future flights for when we fly the crew. We did a lot of that.
1: I'm not an astronaut, so I can ask a really dumb question, right? I'm allowed to do that? <laughs> I know we never did this during the Apollo program, but these are expensive vehicles. Is there any chance that you would ever reuse an Orion or is it one and done?
2: Absolutely. Most of the avionics were pulled out and already going to be used on Artemis three or or four.
1: So the so the capsule itself will not be reused, but some of the systems would be. Is that
2: actually the capsule is going to become Orion and Lockheed Martin's engineering test vehicle? They didn't complete all their certification on, and, and I don't. I don't know to what detail, but they didn't complete all the certification before Artemis II. Everything they needed for Artemis 1 was completed. But they're going to take this engineering test vehicle. And um, after they take all the avionics they want to reuse and, you know, they remove the heat shield. And I just found out, is they're going to reuse the heat shield? At least that was the plan. They're going to take the AV code off of it and reuse the frame because it's it's monolithic blocks. So anyway, most of it is being reused. And I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, Apollo, they never reused them. I don't know. If they plan on reflying them, but I kind of think they are if they don't sustain any damage. But I I really don't know, uh, Sandy.
1: So for our listeners, when you do an engineering test vehicle, you know, you strip out all the electronics. And we're talking about structural like testing to see what the structure can take before it breaks. Right. So. So. uh, Oh, wow.
0: I didn't think the structure was designed to be reused. So you think maybe the testing will show that you can reuse the structure, too?
2: uh you know i wouldn't go that far to be honest i'm just talking above my level i don't I, I
0: yeah no i know this piece some of the piece parts in there especially the avionics was designed to be reusable
2: as i was gonna say one of the challenges is when you get in the in water some of the <laughs> some of you bring water in salt water doesn't go too well with avionics yeah that's bad
1: yeah yeah okay and uh the heat shield performed right
2: um better than expected or as expected or what well it did as expected we what we did is um to really test it is we did what we call a skip entry, where we came in and Orion bored into the atmosphere for a while and then it popped back out, skipped I think we went like 3100 nautical miles, and then we bored back in and so you had basically dual heating uh, regimes, and it really got hot and and it protected the capsule like it was supposed to. What they did see is some charring that they didn't expect. So they're really analyzing that charring, and it's not going to be – it's not going to prevent us from flying Artemis II, but what it may ultimately do is, is um, limit the ranges that we can do those skips. We may have to do a more benign entry, if you will, through the atmosphere. Uh, the skip entry gives gives us more capability of, of hitting the, our uh, landing sites, our splashdown sites but you know there's we can do a direct we can do a short we can do a long we there's there's so much capability and we'll just have to wait till the analysis comes uh, come come out but we know that this, the the shield will protect the astronauts coming back at lunar velocities so were
0: you measuring the temperature inside the crew cabin during the duration of the mission and during the reentry
2: yes um I, you know, I don't have any of that data, but I know we had thermal, uh, we had temperatures, so we knew what the temperatures. Well, we have the data; it's all developmental flight data that was recorded, and I don't know where they are. in playing it back, so I don't know where where we got to. We also the heat shield also had temperature sensors all over it too. It was captured in d- develop, DFI developmental flight instrumentation uh, that didn't come down real time; that they'll have to they got it post flight recorded. So,
1: yeah, they got to go check all their models and make sure their models are right. So, Rick, what is next for you? Are you going to be, uh, maybe they haven't announced yet, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but are, are you going to be the flight director for Artemis 2, uh, or are you, you know, wh- where where is your uh, your personal next move?
2: Yeah. Now, we have another flight director that's lead for uh, Artemis 2, Jeff Radigan. He's actually out on rotation, so um, Zeb Schofield is, is filling in for him. I'm helping out. You know, because I, I have some knowledge from Artemis 1 that I could help. But there's a whole team of Artemis 2 folks. I'll work that mission. And my plan is to work that mission as one of the flight directors, you know, because we have support around the clock, generally with three shifts, nine-hour shifts with an hour handover on each side. Um, so we need a handful of them. It's only a 10-day-ish mission, I believe. So, you know, you could technically do it with three teams, but I think we're going to try and certify five teams and get folks in. So I plan on working that. But I'm also, you know, I also we support ISS on a regular basis, too. There's a lot of shifts that have to support the International Space Station. I'm lead for a cargo mission this fall. That's a Northrop Grumman cargo mission um, this fall. And so I'll continue to do my ISS work, but also help um, follow along with them um, with the Artemis 2 planning. And then also getting a little bit involved in like the Gateway Planning uh, aspect of it, I I got a lot to learn there, but I'm starting to follow along with some of that activities too. So you've got you've got to stay proficient
1: in all these different systems, and obviously you can buff yourself back up when it comes time to actually do the job. But but it's more than just you know the average bear focusing on one type of airplane they're flying, you know, and you know switching over to a seven sixty seven or something. It's like (laughs) yeah, this is a big
2: deal, right? It is, but that's part of the fun too, the variety. You know, I've been a flight director a long time uh, 98. So I'm working on 25 years thinking about making it a career, right? Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, if all I did was one program, I probably would have got kind of burnt out and left, you know, but like I said, I started as a ISS flight director and then about two thirds through the assembly sequence, I got shut- certified on the shuttle side. So I did the last, my last mission was a. Well, I was a shuttle lead. And it was kind of cool because that mission was, was, um, Pam Melroy, and uh, she, she was the woman, uh, female commander. And when we docked to ISS, Peggy was the commander. So we had two women commanders in space, which was really cool. I remember that. And then before the shuttle retired, I started working the constellation and exploration. So it's been something different all the time. And, and leaving the, you know, it's space ops is just the coolest thing you could ever imagine. Uh, you can't do it anywhere else. I mean, we do have centers around around the country, around the world. But, uh, you know, this is where the, the the heart and soul of the human spaceflight is. And it's just the coolest thing. But I tell you, when people ask me about, hey, uh, you know, you seem so excited about Artemis one. I tell you, I was every bit as excited about Artemis one leaving low Earth orbit and heading out in the deep space. I was excited as I was the very first day I walked in the mission control Uh, Right out of college, not really knowing anything, is you know. So it's it's just been a blessed journey for me, and I'm very fortunate.
1: Well, I just wish you were a little more enthusiastic about your job. (laughs)
2: Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, I
0: have I have to say, second to flying in space is working in mission control. It's fun to work in mission control because you are right in the middle of action, and there's a lot going on. And I really enjoyed the time I spent there. But I have to ask you, Rick, as we as we wind down. How does leading a mission like Artemis One compare to leading an ISS or shuttle mission? Because I'm sure Expedition 18 was your all time favorite <laughs> ISS mission.
2: <laughs> well, so I didn't lead that one, Sandy. Um, I uh, but I did work it. They're both unbelievably cool, and the fact that I didn't have a crew on on Artemis One really uh, makes it different. Because you really you 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 work so long with your your crew, and you know you build these relationships that are that are so close that'll last forever you can't change that. So I really missed that part with Artemis one, but it was probably just as good because Artemis one being the first time in this vehicle, you know, I did, there's a lot less overhead, right. When you don't have a crew on board. So I think it was made it more manageable, but um, yeah, it's all, all, I mean, it's all great. I can't, I can't deny it. It's just, it's just, yeah.
0: It's it's hard. You love all your children equally, right? Exactly. You can't pick a favorite. Yes.
2: I don't want to be
1: around either one of you guys on the day they bring down the ISS and and you know back home to Earth. That's oh, that's a whole another thing. We have to put Sandra on a couch, I think, for that. But
2: uh, I'll be in my easy chair with a, a cold libation. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's going to be tough. Yeah, that's a big job to bring that thing down. Well, Rick, it's been really exciting to talk to you i think this is going to be a really cool episode for our listeners because you know you don't get behind the scenes all you see is this you know countdown and off goes the rocket and you get a little bit but getting behind the scenes of mission control i think is really going to be fun for our listeners to get a you know to hear what that's like
0: yeah there's a there's a lot going on that the camera views don't show it's like oh these people just sitting in this room it's like no they're actually doing lots of stuff while they're sitting in that room
2: well, it's absolutely my pleasure to shed a little bit of that, that insight for y'all, and hopefully uh, folks can get something
1: out of it. Yeah, well, thanks for what you do, and thanks for uh, having a successful Artemis mission, which is going to take us to the next step, Artemis 2. Can't
0: wait. I know, Artemis 2. Looking forward to it. Amen, brother. That was the lead flight director in charge of the Artemis 1 mission,
1: Rick LeBrod. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Rick on TikTok. Our handles, very
2: simple, at the Adrenaline Zone.